3: Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour.
4: It's 12.03, Thursday afternoon, January 13th, 2022. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. The NFL enjoying a resurgence in ratings this season. We'll examine the reasons in our next segment. But first, we often talk about financial moves, stock picks, timing the market here on the Noon Business Hour. But there's data that shows doing nothing could be your best bet. Joining us to discuss the benefits of passive investing is Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and MarketWatch.com, based in Washington. Mark, thanks for joining us. And and for my entire life, uh, the idea of playing the market was this image of you have you know two sports cars, the license plates are buy low and sell high, uh, you always have a hot tip on a company, you're ready to work it, you know when to time the market, and maybe all of those moves, all of that stuff that you do to think that you're in control of the markets or you're in control of your portfolio uh, may not even be necessary.
5: Well, not only necessary, I think they're counterproductive. And it, you know, at one level, I think we all know that this is to be true, even though we found it, find it counterintuitive when you put it as boldly as you just put it. But it turns out that on average, we all, almost all, I shouldn't say all, almost all of us, underperform the market over time. And this is something that's widely known in the mutual fund arena and the professional investment advisor arena. And uh, if the average thing we do over time is to lose against the market, that Follows that the average thing we do is a mistake, the average thing we do is going to cost us to is cost us some money and so it doesn't uh, follow uh, all that uh, difficulty to <laughs> conclude from that that if something we do is going to be uh, a mistake, we ought to do it as little as possible. and so uh, that really is where the conclusion comes from. I've a uh, number of studies over the years, including mine, that have uh, all reached that same conclusion and yet. We like to live our lives as though those odds and probabilities don't apply to us. So I think really the lesson is, yes, we are no different than the rest of the uh, the market. Uh, the odds are just not in our favor.
4: Well, it's it's if you're if you're someone who's listened to this program for a, a number of years or a decent amount of time, and you've developed enough knowledge and confidence about investing for you to start doing it on your own, uh, you set aside some money. You do want to start playing the market. Um, what are the expectations you should set going in having this knowledge uh, about uh, passive investing?
5: Well, that's that really is the best question to ask, really, because I think we all think that we can beat the market. We all think that those odds don't apply to us, and there's nothing wrong with trying to beat it. It's uh, it's one of the most challenging intellectual pursuits out there, and so it is, uh, it is something that uh, we all think. You know want to try and and do, and so I think we need to be psychologically realistic that we're going to do it even if we say we're not and so what the recommendation that number of people have made, which I think makes a lot of sense, is to divide up your portfolio into two segments: one we can call it a permanent portfolio and another is a more speculative one the permanent portfolio should be the one that has the bulk of your assets, and that's the one you don't trade. And then you take uh, this other portfolio, put in a certain amount that you can play with, but that becomes your play money. And you don't, bleed one into the other you you keep those two portfolios separate and go ahead and speculate to your heart's content in that speculative portfolio chances are over time it will not do as well as your permanent portfolio but nevertheless it allows you to uh, to indulge that part of your psyche that likes to likes to try and loves the thrill
4: of the chase Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and MarketWatch.com. Based in Washington, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, a look at what's behind that jump in NFL ratings. Loaning useful information each weekday. The WBBM noon business hour continues. It's bounce back season for the NFL's TV ratings. Let's look at what's driving the increase with Tom Layson, media analyst uh, based in Seattle, Washington. Find him on Twitter at Tom Lason. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Is it simply a matter of the return of crowds to football stadia? Because I will tell you that as a viewer last year, Watching the games with either fake crowd noise or no crowd noise at all was disconcerting to the point where I turned it off.
3: Yeah, I think that is definitely a factor. Fans add an energy and an intensity to the experience that just really can't be replaced. That soundtrack running underneath the game, underneath the announce, and underneath the stadium call um, is just an element that is got to be Part of the, you know, the contributive, the additive things that, that add up to this ratings boost. I think the fact that there was no national election um, had something to do with it. Uh, Lots of teams were in playoff contention with lots of nationally popular quarterbacks in the game right now of both the older and the newer generation. And I think, too, that some of the negative stories that plagued the league um, in the past have faded away a bit. Memories are short. People want something to to entertain them. And the folks who were sort of, you know, on strike, if you will, against watching football might have crawled back a little bit.
4: Nielsen also tracks viewers watching programming at bars, hotels and other people's homes. And that provided a bit of a tailwind to the uh, NFL viewing numbers this year.
3: It sure did. And boy, the numbers are spectacular. Overall viewership up 10%. That's about 17 million viewers per game. If you can believe that on both TV and digital platforms, that's the highest average since 2015. And that means that the NFL, the games accounted for 48 of the top 50 shows last year. And if you just look at this past weekend, 19 million viewers for chiefs, Broncos, 20 million viewers for Cowboys, Eagles, a lot of that you know they wrapped into monday night football numbers which you know you can you can question a little bit but still just the raw numbers are impressive
4: is it safe to say that the nfl is single-handedly keeping broadcast tv in business i
3: i, I wouldn't go that far although i think reasonable people can disagree on that and make that statement um you look at the look at the value they assigned to it a hundred billion dollar contract um, just signed with the TV vendors over the next ten years. that is just unreal and that large event we've talked about it in the past, that big event live experience is really the stronghold of broadcast television right now, and with numbers like that um, you know it's it's compelling um i think there still is a, a role for broadcast television and over the air broadcasters and i actually i'm actually pretty bullish on that going forward with the advent of of um, some new forms of television and some new digital tools coming up but yes i think your point is well taken That big event, live broadcast, is really where the money is right
4: now. The streaming services are hovering around the NFL. Uh, Amazon already has a partnership for Thursday night games. Uh, Is it possible for the streamers to replicate the success broadcasters have had with the NFL?
3: Um, Maybe in an aggregate someday over time. Um, Certainly not yet. Um, But, you know, it's all you need for that kind of stuff is a crystal ball. I think aggregate aggregated over time. That is a possibility, especially when you've got um, sports books um, becoming legalized in all 50 states, more than likely over time. So that is going to change. Will it be one for one? Will it match? Will it Sunday surpass broadcast television? I don't know. Um, that's a little over my pay grade, quite frankly, but it'll be interesting to see. You know, again, I think that's a legitimate question.
4: Thanks for joining us. Tom Lason, media analyst based in Seattle, Washington. Find him on Twitter at Tom Lason. Up next, key advice for couples combining their finances. Compounding your interest with an economy of words. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Finances can be a tricky dance, especially for new couples and newlyweds. Let's get insight from Ed Jurtzen, certified financial planner and founder of Engage Wealth Group, based in Chicago. The website, EngageWealthGroup.com. Ed, thanks for joining us today. It is one of the uh, rights of marriage or rights of uh, long-term coupledom, where you and your significant other uh, get together at the bank and combine bank accounts and consider what credit cards to keep. Or continue to make you know make your primary credit card versus one uh, you just kind of pay off and keep and let sit there. Uh, but what about re- thinking about combining retirement accounts? What's some advice to uh, young couples or new couples about how to uh, make sure your retirement savings goals are on the same page?
1: Actually, I think one of the great first steps would be for them to develop some sort of a comprehensive plan, right? And, and have some shared working goals. I mean, not only for today, but also in the future. And when you're talking about retirement plans, you can't have a joint retirement plan with both of your names on it. So typically, one spouse would have an IRA and the other or an account, let's say, within their company, right? They'll have a 401k or the such. So those accounts will be separate. But, you know, your day-to-day spending, make sure you have a plan to have a joint spending plan. Understanding money coming in, how much to save, and then how much is going out will go a long way in helping with that communication and attaining those long-term goals.
4: And is that just simply a matter of knowing your employee contribution rate and adjusting it depending on what you want to do?
1: Yeah, excellent, excellent point. So with our clients, oftentimes we often find one spouse has, let's say, more generous Uh, benefits in their plan. So let's say a better match. And so you always want to have that one spouse contribute more to that plan, because again, this is a joint developed goal, right, for retirement. So if one spouse is getting more money, let's say in a match, by all means, make sure you're maximizing that match, because at the end, it's all the same money.
4: And how often uh, should should you guys huddle um, to just take account of everything that you have, whether it's a retirement plan, pensions, uh, other sources of income that are coming in that could benefit you down the road? Is it just a yearly checkup every six months?
1: Well, every couple has something different, but what a great time now, right? So it's right before tax season, all the annual statements are coming in, you get all your annual spending results, if you would, from your credit cards. Now is an excellent time to accumulate all that information and kind of sit down and then reassess those goals, right? Reassess that that plan in terms of working together to kind of see, you know, not only here's what we thought how we would do, but how did we actually do? So now would be a great time. And again, a six-month check-in is great, but you're paying bills on a monthly, month basis. And while you might not have those very deep conversations, at least you're just checking in to make sure that both spouses are on the same page.
4: If you're in your 20s or in your 30s and your retirement is 30 years down the road or 40 years down the road, uh, what is a reasonable goal to have when you're talking about what your retirement goal should be?
1: Oh, it's a great, great question. So let's retire the word retirement for those in their 20s and 30s, and let's talk about financial independence, right? Your goal is to be financially independent, to be able to kind of do the things that you want to do. And so for those, what it comes down to basically is saving is important, but figure out how much you're going to spend. So as you make more money, you might have spending inflation, meaning you want to spend more money. And so by the time you get to that financial independence, if you've got a lot of cash flow demands, one house, two house, all these different things, it'll make that plan much more difficult to sort of have success in your true retirement years. So look to save, but also be very careful and cognitive of your spending as you sort of grow and your income grows.
4: Thanks a lot. Ed Gertson, certified financial planner and founder of the Engage Wealth Group in Chicago, still ahead in Technology Thursday, health and wellness gadgets to help improve your life in the new year. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're
2: looking in the wrong place.
3: This is Chicago's all news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues.
4: Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The White House looks to more in-home testing as part of its latest strategy to fight the current wave of COVID cases. A GOP leader says you won't talk to the House panel investigation of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by supporters of former President Trump over a year ago. In Technology Thursday, using the latest in tech to improve your health and wellness. And the cruise industry will soon have fewer pandemic restrictions. WBBM Business. The Dow, or I should say the markets are mixed. The Dow is up 55 points. The NASDAQ is down 213. The S&P 500 is down 28. Hacky Weather says intervals of clouds and sunshine today, a high around 40. We have 38 degrees in Chicago under cloudy skies at 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, President Biden is outlining a plan to set up a website so Americans can order free at-home COVID testing kits.
6: In addition to the 500 million- half a billion tests that are in the process of being acquired to ship to you homes for free today i'm directing my team to procure an additional half a billion, additional 500 million more tests distribute for free.
4: The latest figures from Johns Hopkins University show over 63 million cases of COVID in the U.S. and more than 844,000 deaths from the virus. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says there's no legitimate reason for the panel investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol to summon him for questioning.
2: There is nothing that I can provide the January 6th committee for legislation of them moving forward. There is nothing in that realm. It is pure politics of what they're playing.
4: McCarthy accuses the committee of abuse of power. It's 12:32 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are mixed. We're joined once again by Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager with Smart Portfolios, based in San Diego, California. The website, MacroTides.com. Jim, thanks for joining us today. What is driving the market? The Dow is in positive territory. A dip back in the negative, ter- negative territory. It's positive once again. What's on it. What is on investors' minds this afternoon?
6: Well, I think it's a combination of uh, people that are overweight technology because it has performed so well in recent years, realizing that higher interest rates are going to compress price earnings ratios on those stocks. And uh, the net result we're seeing continued selling going on in that sector. At the same time, Rob, the economy is going to still be in decent shape. I think Omicron cases in the U.S. will peak within the next two weeks. If you look at the data out of South Africa and uh, Great Britain, they have peaked and they have led us uh, over the last year or so. When their cases peak, we usually peak within a couple of weeks or so afterwards. So uh, I think that is going to help, uh, you know, people realize that the economy is going to be all right after a little stumble at the beginning of the year.
4: When is the, uh, in your estimation, when will the uh, flight out of tech uh, finish?
6: <laughs> Not for a while. Uh, You know, a lot of people listened to uh, Chair Powell on Tuesday and kind of walked away with, oh, gee, they're just going to, you know, gradually raise rates. They're not going to shrink their balance sheet. No big deal. But the thing I think most people have missed, Rob, is he said that inflation represents a severe threat. So to me, that's not, you know, if you have a big problem, you don't go for a walk in the park you move aggressively, and I think there's a real chance that the markets are misunderstanding or didn't hear what he said and that the Fed will move to raise rates at the March, May, and June meetings Um, because they're behind the curve. They need to kind of reestablish some credibility, and you can't do it just at this point in time with talk. So the point being is I think the 10-year, and I've been saying this for months, was going to make a move to 2%. I think that happens. And as long as we're seeing upward pressure on rates, Rob, those high P.E. stocks, tech stocks are going to be under pressure. I think that could last through most of the first quarter.
4: Now that the uh, Fed has established that inflation is a problem and that they do have a plan to combat it, is that enough just to say that you're aware of what's going on (laughs) and you're going to fight it?
6: No, I mean, it's kind of like basically for a very, very long time, the Powell and company kept saying transitory, transitory. Now, basically, what they realize is their pants are down around their ankles. They're going to have to react quickly and I think forcefully. And I'm not sure the markets fully appreciate this. A lot of this is out of the Fed's control. Um, But what they see is wage growth really uh, picking up, which is a good thing. But at the same time, that's the thing that gets embedded in uh, prices, the price structure. And that's why I think the Fed realizes finally that this inflationary issue uh, is a big problem. And again, you don't react to a big problem uh, by you know, moving slowly or gradually. I think at the front end, the, the move from zero to 75 basis points, Rob, is the easy part. The Fed, I think, realizes that they should do that quickly out of fear that, gee, if we wait and wait, We may have to be raising rates late 22, early 23, and then the risk of potentially raising too much becomes a factor. Again, that's why I think they're more likely to sound much more hawkish in the coming weeks, and actually start to move more aggressively than, you know, I think the markets realize.
4: Is there a point at some time later this year where we're maybe into interest rate hike one or two and it's obvious that what they're doing is clearly working and it has crushed the curve of inflation or at least bent it downward a little bit and uh, they might uh, pull back a little bit or are they committed now, do you think, to this uh, this four up to four rate hike plan?
6: Yeah, Rob, it's a great question, and I'm gonna, I went in detail to address this particular exact question in my January macro tides. If somebody wants a copy, Jim Welsh macro at Gmail, and I'll send you the January issue. Here's what I think is going to happen. The Fed's going to act forcefully in the short run, and then we're going because of statistics, not because it's crushing inflation or anything. Just statistically, uh, inflation jumped a lot last uh, April, May, and June. Those numbers get takeaway values in 2022. We're going to see the statistical numbers of inflation come down, even as core inflation doesn't come down as much. But to your point, I think it allows the Fed, if they do move aggressively in in March, May, and June, they could hit the pause button after that third rate increase because the data will be coming down on inflation, especially headline inflation, and they can say, hey, we've already uh, taken some steps forward. So that, to me, is potentially the layout, and that would allow, after a 10 to 15% correction uh, in the near term, uh, a, a very significant rally in the second half of this year.
4: Thanks for joining us, Jim Welsh, macro strategist, portfolio manager, smart portfolios in San Diego, California, the website macrotides.com. Up next in Technology Thursday, a cute stuffed animal robot that nibbles on your finger. Who said the future was terrifying? The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're putting a premium on health and wellness and the latest in tech to help you achieve your goals. We welcome in Jennifer Jolly, Tech Life columnist for USA Today and founder and editor-in-chief of Techish.com, based in San Francisco. Uh, Before we go into the health and wellness technology, uh, let's talk (laughs) about the uh, 400-pound robot in the room, and that is the Amagami Ham Ham finger nibbling <laughs> robot toy. Uh, let me read some of the features of the finger nibbling robot toy. The robot uses a special algorithm called a Hamgo rhythm to randomly select from two dozen nibbling patterns to keep users interested. This is based on a Japanese uh, cartoon character or children's uh, television series <laughs> character. And my question to you, Jennifer, is why.
0: I think the answer here is because they can. I This was one of those wellness gadgets. Somebody asked me last week at CES, uh, hey, did, have, is there a gadget that can cure COVID yet, a fix for COVID yet? And I said, no, but there's a cute little plushy robot that nibbles on your fingers to comfort you and brighten your day. <laughs> um, oddly... Enough. I guess there's a lot of people who find that comforting and now it's sort of all about comfort tech as we talked about last week. So... Yeah, <laughs> that's a <the>
4: thing. <laughs> According to Subasa Tominaga, who was the, uh, the chief marketing officer of the company that came up with the idea, he said most people like the nibbling sensation uh, from a child or from a pet, yeah. but eventually they have to stop because they will just <laughs> chop down on your fingers and the robot is more gentle uh, on a more consistent basis.
0: It's odd. It's just strange. You know, I can't pretend to know the engineering that goes behind this or the the focus groups that go into this. But this is out of the same company that uh, back in 2020, I believe, gave us the Q-U-O-O-B-O, Kubo. It was just basically a furry round pillow uh, with a prolific wagging tail. And so you never know what to expect from this company. Hopefully, I am really, really hopeful it will be something just as weird and wacky again next year.
4: Well, let's move on now to the UVC smartphone UV light sanitizer. This is something that tells you in an augmented reality way. It shows you the germs that are on a surface and then it provides a UV light to wipe them out.
0: Yeah, isn't that incredible? We've seen a slew of these light sanitizing gadgets launched since the start of the pandemic. But this is the first one that we've seen that is small enough. It's just about the size of a credit card. It sticks to the back of your own smartphone. You charge it up, and then it magnetically attaches there and promises to kill 99.9% of germs, bacteria, viruses, including the coronavirus. So it's really incredible. Apparently, these UV, LED, UV light rays actually work. You cannot use them on your skin, but it actually, the AI, the um, artificial intelligence knows for, and I don't know how it knows this, but it knows like anytime my hand or any part of my skin got too close, it would say sensing human and it would shut itself off.
4: And then very quickly, let's talk about Bob the Mini Dishwasher. This sounds like something that could be really beneficial to uh, college students eventually.
0: Well, my husband has seen thousands of gadgets come and go over the years. He has the hugest tech crush on Little Bob, the mini dishwasher. This is about the size of a microwave and can clean enough dishes for one or maybe two if it has to. But what's really cool about it, you just pour the water in the top of it. You don't have to to wire it in, plumb it in in any way. It just has to have a, you know, be next to the sink and have a place to, to get rid of the water when it's done. But it's Wi-Fi connection, Wi-Fi connected, and uh, basically does a super fast 20-minute wash cycle, which the company says uses five times less water than if you do the dishes by hand. It's also a COVID gadget with UVC light that zaps 99 point, well, 99% well ninety-nine they say of the va- bacteria and viruses with a waterless cycle. Um, and, you know, when I asked my husband why he likes it so much, he said, you know, how can something this small that takes up so little space be this functional and it saves me from hand washing all those dirty glasses I find at the end of the day that you've left lying around everywhere?
4: Thanks a lot, oh, Jennifer Jolly. Oh, yes. Tech saver. <laughs> Tech Life columnist for USA Founder and editor-in-chief of Techish.com, based in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us. Information to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Guidance for Cruise Lines expires on Saturday. Let's get the latest now from Tom Hudson, Week Ahead columnist, McClatchy Tribune News Services, based in Miami, Florida. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Uh, that means uh, starting Saturday, uh, cruise lines could choose to continue to follow the guidelines or not. Um, what's are the likelihood that uh, the cruise lines will will opt in and continue to follow those rules?
7: hundred oh, percent, they're going to continue to follow those rules, Rob. Uh, the market has kind of left them with no choice. They know that these are the best protocols for them to continue to be able to get passengers welcome passengers back on board even during this Omicron surge. They know they have to continue to provide a safe framework and safe uh, sailing uh, uh, environment for, for, for cruise fans, certainly those that have been pining to get on a cruise ship over the last many, many months. And they know in order to continue to collect those uh, cabin fares, they've got to assure their customers that, that they know how to deal with COVID outbreaks when they happen because they are happening. Almost every passenger cruise ship operating in U.S. waters has a case of COVID now, according to the CDC dashboard.
4: Cruise ships uh, or the cruise terminals are a big chunk of the tourist trade in Florida, whether it's Port Canaveral, Miami, Tampa, Fort Lauderdale. Um, How has the cruise market uh, recovered since the ships were allowed to
7: sail once again? Uh, slow and choppy. Uh, I was talking to a source at Port Miami just a few moments ago and said that the cruise passenger traffic is steady. But, yes, there have been some volunteer cancellations as these cruise ships like uh, Norwegian, Royal Caribbean and others have grown concerned about Omicron. And just understand that putting these large cruise ships and thousands of passengers on board a, uh, a ship in the Caribbean Sea, for instance, while the, the the sailing may be smooth, the passenger experience could be interrupted, and that could uh, that could be a larger liability than just hitting pause on some of these cruises for now.
4: The uh, cruise ships themselves are are they are these ships operating at full capacity? Do they have their own uh, social distance limitations, or is is social distancing being imposed on them by the free market? In that, a lot of passengers just aren't sailing.
7: Uh, A a few of them are are sailing at capacity. Most of the framework around the conditional sail order was about managing passenger uh, density on board as part of the protocol in order to help uh, manage any possible COVID outbreak. And the passenger cruise ship operators have been very careful, uh, both in their word and in their deed, about getting back on the water. They've also been very steady and putting a lot of pressure on the CDC about saying, we've got this, we've got protocols in place, we know how to operate, let us sail with these protocols in place. And the CDC sounds convinced that they're, it is pretty certain that the, uh, that the industry is able to operate even with COVID.
4: Thanks for joining us, Tom Hudson, Week Ahead Columnist with McClatchy Tribune News Services based in Miami. If you missed any part of today's show, you can go to our stream and just skip back to the time you want. There's a pause and rewind function that works both online and with the Odyssey app.